Reboots are the darlings of the entertainment industry these days. Have you noticed? A vast number of previously extinct shows have made a comeback, like American Idol, Will and Grace, Roseanne, briefly, Mystery Science Theater 3000, Trading Spaces, Battle of the Network Stars, Lost in Space, Match Game, The Gong Show, DuckTales, Dynasty, MacGyver, Dallas, Knight Rider, The Muppets, The X-Files, Heathers, Queer Eye for the Straight Guy, Twin Peaks, The Odd Couple, V, The Joker's Wild, One Day at a Time, and Full House, just to name a few. And with so many franchises enjoying a resurrection, producers are rushing to not have to think of ideas by also green-lighting reboots of Murphy Brown, The Office, The Munsters, which is rumored to be set in modern-day Brooklyn, and one that really intrigues me, The Jetsons, as a live-action sitcom. Big-budget hero movie reboots, not sequels, do not seem to be faring quite as well, greatly due to the rotating castings of Spider-Men, Batman, Superman, Incredible Hulks, and a surprising clunker throughout the ages, Godzilla's in 1995, 1998, 2000, and 2014. Whether or not you are in favor of this new Hollywood trend, it should be noted that reboots have been both directly and indirectly employed in the entertainment industry for hundreds of years. Have you ever heard a retelling of Romeo and Juliet, Cinderella, A Christmas Carol, or The Wizard of Oz? I am guessing that you answered yes to most, if not all, of these questions and must be as fascinated as I am by the fact that those stories were written in 1597, 1697, 1843, and 1900. And the 1697 Cinderella is itself a retelling of a folktale known as the Little Glass Slipper that dates as far back as the year 7 BCE and would be retold a whole dang lot by the time the Brothers Grimm took a hold of it in 1812, only to be rebranded in different languages. Cinderella translates to Cenerentola in Italian, Aschenputtel in German, Cendrillon in French, Aschepochter in Dutch, Cenicienta in Spanish, and Zolushka in Russian. The artistic liberties taken with this apologue are as variant as there are names for the young lady. In some renderings, Ashen Poodle's father is a doddering putz that gets steamrolled by the evil stepmother and the three wicked stepsisters. But in most tellings, he is dead. A few adaptations replace the evil stepmother with Zalushka's father, who is evil. And usually, Senarentola is aided by a fairy godmother or by the ghost of her dead mother, and her footwear 
has run the gamut between glass slippers and fur footies in this famous fairy tale. Ooh, alliteration. It is probably safe to say that a majority of people are only familiar with the 1950 Walt Disney film version of Cinderella and most likely don't realize that in the preceding incarnations of the fable, one of the evil stepsisters cuts off her big toe so her foot would fit in the glass slipper. And if that wasn't gruesome enough, then all three stepsisters get blinded when a murder of comeuppance crows swoop in and peck their eyes out. As you all know, I am a gambling man, and I would wager my next paycheck that it is only a matter of time before we get another reboot of this fairy tale. Perhaps a role-reversing Cinderfella, starring who else but Dwayne The Rock Johnson. The Wizard of Oz was so popular when it came out, it cashed in on reboots just four years after it captured the imaginations of both young and old. The first book in the Oz series was written in 1900 by L. Frank Baum, who freely admitted that the themes used by Hans Christian Andersen and Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland influenced him heavily in creating his fictional universe. Baum subscribed to Carroll's opinions regarding children's books in that they should be fun to read with pictures and void of Victorian morals. Frank Baum also borrowed inspiration from the White City that was showcased at the 1893 Chicago World's Fair as a basis for the Emerald City of Oz, a name derived from the pedestrian genius of his file cabinet drawer that was labeled O-Z. In fact, he grabbed much from his personal life to throw into the Chronicles of Oz. The terrifying giant wizard head that Dorothy pleads with to send her home is supposedly a depiction of the robber baron of Standard Oil, John D. Rockefeller, who once tried to force unwilling buyouts of smaller, weaker oilmen like Benjamin Ward Baum, Frank Baum's father. The Scarecrow character was born out of Frank's overcoming his childhood fear of the bird-booing straw-filled farm utility. And L. Frank Baum's heroine Dorothy is an homage to his niece, Dorothy Louise Gage, who died from brain complications in infancy. Scatter curiosity, the L in Frank Baum's name stands for Lyman his first name, which he hated. Like Cinderella, I imagine more people are familiar with the movie The Wizard of Oz than the book and might find some of the differences intriguing. In the novel The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, the ruby slippers are silver shoes, Dorothy and the gang have to wear green sunglasses to prevent them from being blinded by the Emerald City, and 
when they finally get to see the wizard, Oscar Diggs, each of them sees different things. The lion sees a ball of fire. Dorothy sees a giant head on a throne. The scarecrow sees a pretty woman in a gown. And the tin man sees a horrifying creature. The wicked witch from the east, the one that Dorothy kills with her house, is the ruler of Munchkin Country, highlighted in blue on the map of Oz, while the Wicked Witch of the West presides over Winky Country, which is yellow on the map. And at one point of the story, she sends wolves out after the traveling party, which the Tin Man, a.k.a. former munchkin Nick Chopper, kills with his trusty axe. And the movie totally dismisses the Aussian ethnic groups of the Quadlings in the South and the Gillikins of the North. In chapter 12 of the book, the Wicked Witch deploys a swarm of bees to sting our heroes to death, but this plot is circumvented by the Scarecrow and the Tin Man. And an altered musical portrayal of this scene called the Jitterbug, was actually cut from the movie. In the version of the film that you've seen, the Wicked Witch reveals to her head monkey, quote, I sent a little insect on a head to take the fight out of them, end quote. She is referring to the Jitterbug, which puts Dorothy and her pals in a trance that makes them dance maniacally to exhaustion, allowing them to be taken over by flying monkeys. And you could see footage of this lost musical number on YouTube. Also not in the movie is when that wickedly western witch sends crows to peck out their eyes, just like Cinderella's stepsisters, but the scarecrow breaks their necks. Both mediums incorporate flying monkeys that kidnap Dorothy, who is tricked out of her enchanted shoes by the Wicked Witch, prompting the girl to splash the mean old lady with a nearby bucket of water that is just foolishly sitting out in the open, which melts her good and dead. At this point of the book, the newly emancipated Winkies ask the Tin Man to be their leader, which he agrees to do, after he helps Dorothy get home. And like in the movie, the wonderful wizard agrees to take Dorothy back to Kansas, make Scarecrow the ruler of the Emerald City, gets blown away in his hot air balloon without the girl, and it's up to the good witch to save the day. Only in the book, when the wizard gets blown... Dorothy and her friends are forced to caravan to see Glinda, the good witch of the South, not the North like in the movie, at her ruby palace for guidance. And on their journey, the no longer cowardly lion kills a spider that has been freaking out the Denzians of the forest who make the furry hero their king of the jungle. And like the movie, Glinda reveals to Dorothy that she had the power to get home the whole time 
and instructs the girl to click her heels on home. But before waking up in black and white, a genius attribute that only the movie could have provided, the book has a bonus scene of the freed flying monkeys carrying the lion, tin man, and scarecrow to the realms of their new kingdoms. In between the writing of Lyman's book in 1900 and Victor Fleming's classic film three decades later, there was a Wizard of Oz stage musical produced by L. Frank Baum in Chicago, which eventually became a successful Broadway show that was not really for kids and made overt political statements about Senator Mark Hanna, Theodore Roosevelt, and, of course, J.D. Rockefeller. Reviews of the musical suggested that the songs did not further the plot, but it was well enough received to be spun off into two more musicals, The Woggle Bug in 1905 and The Tick-Tock Man of Oz in 1913 both scathed by the critics as blatant reboots of the original rather than legit standalone sequels. However, TikTok was slightly more triumphant than Wogglebug. Yet, even between the hype of the musical when it was first staged in Chicago and the Wogglebug in 1905, the first book sequel... The Marvelous Land of Oz was begrudgingly written by Baum at the request of fan letters, the same way that Twitter saved Brooklyn Nine-Nine. And he kept churning out one a year between 1907 and 1909, took a year off, came back in 1911 with The Emerald City of Oz, took an additional year off, and then continued to pen one book each year from 1913 to 1919 when he died. But Oz Adventures would not die with him when his publisher hired Ruth Plumley Thompson to write 21 more installments. Of the 40 official Oz books, only 14 were written by L. Frank Baum himself. Then, of course, you have the 1939 movie that we are all most familiar with. In 1975, Motown Productions treated us to The Wiz, starring Michael Jackson, Diana Ross, Richard Pryor, Lena Horne, Nipsey Russell, Ted Ross, and Mabel King. The Return to Oz, a decade later, was far less groovy and was based on the first two book sequels that Frank Baum wrote, The Marvelous Land of Oz and Ozma of Oz, that included the characters Jack Pumpkinhead, Wheelers, The Gnome King, Princess Mombi, TikTok, and Princess Ozma. The Wizard of Oz got its groove back in the mid-1990s via an all-star concert starring Jewel as Dorothy, 
Roger Daltrey as the Tin Man, Jackson Brown as the Scarecrow, Nathan Lane as the Cowardly Lion, with guest appearances by Natalie Cole, Deborah Winger, and Lucy Arnaz. And Once Upon a Time, Roseanne Barr starred in a very lucrative production as the Wicked Witch and would be succeeded by Eartha Kitt and Joanne Worley with a bonus of Mickey Rooney as the Wizard. And, of course, there is also the smash hit still running since 2003 Broadway musical, Wicked, The Life and Times of the Wicked Witch of the West. And I have great confidence that we have not seen the last milking of this cash cow either, especially with a menagerie of characters to explore, like... Ombi Abbey want to win battles, the soldier with the green whiskers, who is the captain general of the Royal Army of Oz, Jellia Jam, a.k.a. the pretty green girl, Ginger with two J's, a leader in the all-girl army of revolt, the hungry tiger, the shaggy man, a homeless guy from the real world who ends up in Oz, Eureka, Dorothy's purplish-pink kitten, Kabumpo, the elegant elephant of Pumperdink, Jenny Jump, a teenage Jersey girl who is half-fairy, I am not making this up, Trot, a girl younger than Dorothy who comes to Oz, and Betsy Bobbin, a shipwrecked girl from Oklahoma who is one year older than Dorothy, That gets marooned in Oz with her talking donkey Hank. What's next? Will Quadlings and Gillikins form an alliance to conquer Kansas? Will the Witches of Oz unite with the Patchwork Girl to re-enslave winged primates to whip munchkins and winkies in an Emerald City sweatshop? Or even better, a prequel from the time when the Flying Monkeys ruled the land. Please, somebody steal that last idea and make it. You can compensate me for the idea with tickets to the premiere and 2% of the merchandising. But as influential as L. Frank Baum's Oz folklore has been to modern storytelling, can you name any of his non-Oz books? It's too bad if you can't, because some of his titles are so delightfully fun to say. By the Candelabra's Glare, Dot and Tot of Maryland, John Doe and the Cherub, The Master Key and Electrical Fairy Tale, The Life and Adventures of Santa Claus, Quaint Quacks and Feathered Shafts for Mature Children, The Sea Fairies, Sky Island, Molly Oodle, The Mystery of Bonita, in addition to some of his short stories. The Return of Dick Weemans, The Extravagance of Dan, A Cold Day on the Railroad, Aunt Hulda's Good Time, The Loveridge Burglary, Mr. Rumpel's Chill, Bess of the Movies, A Kidnap Santa Claus, The Bad Man, The Wogglebug Book, Jack Burgett's Honor, The Man Fairy, 
Juggerjook, The Tramp and the Baby, The Witchcraft of Mary Marie, and They Played a New Hamlet. Now that one sounds familiar, Hamlet. And we all know who wrote that one, which blows my mind because it was written 420 years ago. And even more mind-boggling, you can probably name several of William Shakespeare's titles, and I guarantee that you use words in your everyday life that he invented. And while Frank Baum may rival Shakespeare in the sheer quantity of content, as well as numerous retellings of one story, Shakespeare had 36 histories, comedies, and tragedies, not including the sonnets, and is easily the reboot king whose closest rival in rebooted regard was another Englishman and fan of Shakespeare who emerged two centuries later yielding a literary canon that has also greatly influenced modern storytelling. In fact, these guys have so much in common that their writing styles are definitions of writing itself. It's Batman creating the Joker today because what the Dickens came from the pen of John Shakespeare's son. I realize that intro may not have been crystal clear. Today, we are discussing the stories of Charles Dickens and William Shakespeare and their influence on retellings in entertainment, as well as some of the fun parallels that can be found between these two sons of John's. Okay, check that fact off the list. Both men had fathers named John. Not surprising, as it had been the most popular name since 1530. So, John Dickens and John Shakespeare's boys both grew up in modest, not quite poor, conditions. However, each of them saw their fathers in financial strife in their teenage years. John Shakespeare lost his job as an alderman, and John Dickens was made to wallow away in debtor's prison after going bankrupt, resigning his son Charles to factory labor blacking boots, something the boy detested. Wouldn't you? William and Charles each died in their 50s in their respective hometowns, which were both outside of London, the epicenter where the men found their fame as actors and writers. Shakespeare's homeland is Stratford-upon-Avon, Warwickshire, England, during the Elizabethan era, and Dickens was native to Portsmouth, England, amid the Victorian era. And in case you didn't know, Victorian and Elizabethan refers to Queen Victoria and Queen Elizabeth, the sovereigns of the time, powerful women rulers who desired to expand the British Empire and commerce with the New World. 
So it is not surprising that Dickens and Shakespeare wrote important leading roles for strong women in their works, even though in Shakespeare's time, those roles were performed by men. Because of England's world presence, both men became concerned about the commercialization of their writings, i.e., they got to get paid. Some artists and writers of the world do it for the art and passion and the need to express themselves, and these dudes did too, but there is no doubt that they were also in it for the money, which the blokes brought in because they were able to keep spewing out top-notch classics peppered with metaphors at a steady pace, conquering wars of words with pens mightier than swords. Because you are listening to this podcast, I assume that you have heard the word Shakespearean before, meaning of, relating to, or suggestive of Shakespeare or his works, or a Shakespearean scholar, a specialist in the study of Shakespeare, the latter of which I do not claim to be. I am not a historian or specialist of any kind, just an enthusiast taking the lead from Cole Porter to brush up your Shakespeare. Just as the word Shakespearean conjures a particular style in your mind when you hear it, Dickensian is also a familiar flavor of the lifestyles of the obscure and impoverished. Scatter curiosity, the reason for this episode is the fact that the expression what the Dickens comes from William Shakespeare's The Merry Wives of Windsor, Act 3, Scene 2, when Bill uses Dickens as a euphemism for devil. And the line goes, quote, I cannot tell what the Dickens his name is, end quote. Bonus curiosity, this delightful Shakespeare romp also introduced the phrases laughing stock, the short and long of it, the world's my oyster, and hot-blooded in addition to what the Dickens. This surely tickled Mr. Dickens, who worshipped Shakespeare, a.k.a. the Sweet Swan of Avon, and spoke of him ad nauseum, despite the fact that the sentiment could not possibly be reciprocated. But give Will a break. He died 196 years before Dickens was even born. But don't worry... Charles had no problem revering himself with titles like Revolver, Resurrectionist, The Inimitable, and The Sparkler of Albion. In his mid-30s, Charles was heavily fundraising for the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust and did so by producing plays of the bard as Charles Dickens' earliest desire was to be an actor and he would later in life perform in a production of The Merry Wives of Windsor, the What the Dickens play. God, I wish I could have seen that. 
Charles even managed to shove a little Shakespeare into some of his novels as well. There is a performance of Hamlet in Great Expectations. Little Nell and her grandpa from the old curiosity shop are said to be based on Cordelia and King Lear. And Nancy's murder in Oliver Twist hearkens to Duncan's death at the end of Macbeth. Now, it goes without saying that Shakespeare influenced countless authors in addition to Charles Dickens, such as Voltaire, William Faulkner, Thomas Hardy, Victor Hugo, Samuel Taylor Coleridge, Bertolt Brecht, and Herman Melville, whose Captain Ahab character from Moby Dick is also said to have been modeled after King Lear. Although not all masters of the pen looked upon the Star of Poets with adoration, George Bernard Shaw coined a catty term for the worship of Shakespeare, bardolatry, adding that Henrik Ibsen's works made Shakespeare obsolete. Scatter curiosity, did you know that Shakespeare also inspired over 20,000 musical compositions? Most notably, Verdi's Falstaff and Otello. Bill and Chuck married their wives at a young age, but Dickens would become estranged from his wife, Catherine Thomas Hogarth, at the age of 45 as a result of his infatuation with a lady ingenue who was less than half his age, leaving Catherine and their ten kids, Charles Jr., Walter, Kate, Sidney, Mary, Francis, Henry, Alfred, Edward, and Dora Dickens. Divorce was considered to be scandalous in the Victorian era, so he was technically still married throughout the affair. There are less detailed accounts of Shakespeare's marriage to Anne Hathaway, no, not that one, when he was 18. She was actually 26 and pregnant at the time with their first of three children. The couple had two daughters, Judith and Susanna Shakespeare, and a son named Hamnet who died at age 11. Shakespeare also seemingly dissed his wife only in death within his will in which he left her, quote, my second best bed, end quote. Now, as harsh as that sounds, some scholars argue that the second best bed is the bed that they would have slept in together because people in the olden days used to have manners, and the best bed was reserved for guests. No couches, futons, or air mattresses. And on William and Anne's 1582 marriage document, the bard's last name was misspelled and reads, quote, William Shagspeare. Oh, behave. While the men artfully voiced social commentary within their works, 
Dickens' style is far more blunt than Shakespeare's prose. But there is no question that both desired fame and praise, as evidenced by their fantastic signatures. Seriously, look up pictures online. Shakespeare's is slightly easier to read. They practice those things, I guarantee it. Charles Dickens was more famous at the height of his career, but Shakespeare gets a handicap in this department because Dickens had the massive advantage of superior printing technology to distribute his works, while Shakespeare's legacy relied on handwritten and sometimes for memory copies of the greatest theatrical works ever conceived by man. So, much of the literature of Charles Dickens have never been out of print. And although he is more associated with books than theater, a number of his works have been put on the stage in both dramatic and musical form. Great Expectations, A Christmas Carol, Oliver Twist, and The Mystery of Edwin Drood. And like Shakespeare, Dickens isn't without his praise from fellow writers either. He was held with great esteem by George Orwell and Leo Tolstoy for bringing the conditions of the impoverished to the consciousness of the world. Jules Verne said Charles was his favorite writer, and Vincent van Gogh asserted that Dickens inspired many of his paintings and claimed that A Christmas Carol convinced him not to commit suicide. And also, like Shakespeare, Dickens had his critics and was jeered by Virginia Woolf and Oscar Wilde. Scattered curiosity, Charles Dickens has a tomb in Westminster Abbey. When Shakespeare died, many of his contemporaries wanted him to be moved there too. But his tombstone ominously says, quote, Good friend, for Jesus' sake, forbear to dig the dust enclosed here. Blessed be the man who spares these stones, and cursed be he that moves my bones. End quote. Zoinks! Like, that's pretty spooky, Scoob. I love it! As you might imagine, the coffin was left alone, and Shakespeare's skeleton remains there to this very day. And instead, a memorial to the bard exists in Westminster Abbey, a suggestion that was made by Charles Dickens while he was still alive and fundraising for the bard bones. Having lived two centuries later, Dickens was afforded many experiences that Shakespeare would never know. In 1842, Charles went on an American tour that was received like the Beatles coming to the United States for the very first time. The trip started in Boston, which the writer loved and branded Boztown with a Z. But the inimitable soon tired of his celebrity by the time that he made it to New York City 
and saw how people were getting rich off of him. Tiffany's was hawking unapproved molds of his bust, and barbers claimed to have locks of his hair for sale. And Dickens developed quite a distaste for the USA after learning that international copyright laws did little in preventing his writings from being pirated. So Dickens called upon Washington Irving to get signatures from fellow writers to file a complaint with Congress. Yet the public seemed to be of the mindset that Charles Dickens should just be happy to be so popular and not be so greedy. Like me, Dickens was grossed out by the manners of New Yorkers, or lack thereof, in addition to the spitting of tobacco in the streets and sidewalks, and was totally turned off by shady American politics. Dickens said, quote, I never knew what it was like to feel disgust and contempt till I traveled in America, end quote. And he called the country, quote, a vast counting house, end quote, full of nothing but, quote, humbugs and bores, end quote. The American press fired back much like they would today, calling Dickens' hairstyle and clothing foppish and effeminate and referred to him as a contemptible cockney and a penny-a-line loafer. That same year, Charles Dickens began work on what he believed to be his best, Martin Chuzzlewit, which was a financial flop greatly due to the poor sales in America. Not surprising, it was largely an anti-American satire of American greed and Yankee oafishness. His friend Thomas Carlyle said that Dickens, quote, caused all Yankee doodledom to blaze up like one universal soda bottle, end quote. And it is within these pages that Dickens is said to be responsible for why we call a cowardly person a chicken, with this line from The Life and Adventures of Martin Chuzzlewit. Quote, Why, what a chicken you are! You're not afraid of being robbed, are you? End quote. Dickens would reconcile his relationship with America, however, through his surprising best-selling hit, A Christmas Carol, which highlighted a new fad that was being practiced in Britain at the time, Christmas trees. A Christmas Carol is not only credited with breathing new life into the commercial holiday, it was Dickens' biggest commercial success in the United States. The reviews were almost entirely positive, though there were still several unauthorized volumes of the book being sold, which Dickens wasted no time in litigating against, and this time winning. Charles also had a particular affinity for France, visited it often, 
and enjoyed meeting his contemporaries, Victor Hugo and Alexander Dumas. Dickens referred to the French as, quote, the first people in the universe, end quote. But his favorite dude of all time is English, and in 1856, Dickens fulfilled a lifelong goal of his and purchased Gad's Hill Place in Highham, Kent. Why did he want it so bad? It was a backdrop for happenings in William Shakespeare's Henry IV Part I that inspired Dickens to write the play The Frozen Deep in addition to his next few novels, Nicholas Nickleby, A Tale of Two Cities, and Great Expectations. Dickens even flirted with the idea of returning to America, but was advised against it due to a little conflict happening in the United States at the time called the Civil War. Charles would not return stateside until the country's reunification. This time around, he embraced New York City and spoke highly of his sleigh ride experience through Central Park, which seems acutely poetic to me because he kind of invented Christmas as we know it today. Charles Dickens died of a stroke three years later, and one of his many biographers referred to Dickens as, quote, the greatest creator of characters in English fiction after Shakespeare, end quote. Citing Ebenezer Scrooge, Tiny Tim, Bob Cratchit, Oliver Twist, Fagin, Pip, and Miss Havisham as examples. I couldn't agree more. Dickensian and Shakespearean archetypes are responsible for countless literary characters for nearly half a millennium. And while I think it is widely known that Shakespeare invented a lot of words and turns of phrases we still use today, I'm not sure that many folks are aware that Charles Dickens has a few of his own. Shakespeare's word births and reboots outshine Dickens in modern relevance and usage. However, I would argue the word births of Charles Dickens are funnier to read and pronounce out loud. But I leave you to be the judge in this tennis match of wits. In the Pickwick Papers, Charles Dickens used the word flummoxed, meaning confused, sawbones as slang for a doctor or surgeon, and whiz-bang, meaning something happening fast. Between Richard II and Richard III, no Richard I, though, maybe he's the reason Richard got shortened to Dick, Shakespeare gave us the words ungoverned, accused, time-honored, unwillingness in both plays, bottled, and My Kingdom for a Horse. And Netflix's House of Cards is said to have been inspired by Richard III, a role that was actually played by Kevin Spacey on Broadway. And I don't think that anyone but Charles Dickens could have written, quote, to think of Jack Dawkins, Lummy Jack, the Dodger, 
the Artful Dodger, going abroad for a common two-penny, half-penny sneeze box, end quote. It hails from Oliver Twist, which spurned popular retellings with Oliver and Company, Twist, Twisted, and the musical Oliver. Shakespeare's Merchant of Venice gave us bated breath, laughable, mortifying, also used in Much Ado About Nothing, scrubbed, meaning canceled, and the saying, love is blind. Nicholas Nickleby uses conubialities in reference to the arguments of married couples. All's Well That Ends Well's title alone is familiar to all of us, as are the christenings of words within it, like noiseless, also to be found in King Lear, and lustrous. Sketches by Boz employed the first use of the word sandwich board, Much Ado About Nothing also has a title that stands alone as a timeless saying, as are its inaugural outing of words like unmitigated, employer, lie low, and schoolboy, used again in Julius Caesar. Martin Chuzzlewit, my favoritely titled work by Charles Dickens, was also a television show that I never heard of until doing this episode. In the book, Dickens invented the words gamp, meaning a big umbrella, and pecksniff to insult a chastising nosy hypocrite. Now we start in with some of the big ones, like Hamlet, inspiration to the television show Sons of Anarchy, and movies like the Lion King, and the 1968 Italian spaghetti western, Johnny Hamlet. The tragedy of the most famous of Great Danes, winning out over the animated canines Marmaduke and Scooby-Doo, brought about the word distracted, and the phrases to unhand, there's the rub, this mortal coil, to thine own self be true, sick at heart, own flesh and blood, in my heart of hearts, and in my mind's eye. A Christmas carol spawned the ever-famous catchphrase, Bah Humbug, and without it, or the antagonist-turned-protagonist that grumbled it, Ebenezer Scrooge, the world never would have gotten Scrooge McDuck in 1947 or the Uncle Scrooge comic book series five years later, which is still in production today. A Christmas Carol has been parodied, reimagined, and satirized more times than I can count. Throughout the past three and a quarter century, hundreds of characters have been taught lessons by time-traveling ghosts. Here are a few of my favorites. An all-dogs Christmas carol, an American carol, Bah Humduck, a Looney Tune Christmas, in addition to a Bugs Bunny Christmas carol, a Carol Christmas, a Carol for Another Christmas, Chasing Christmas, 
Christmas Cupid, a Dennis the Menace Christmas, a Diva's Christmas Carol, Ebenezer, Ebby, a Flintstones Christmas Carol, Ghosts of Girlfriends Past, It's Christmas Carol, It's Never Too Late, Carol's Christmas Carol with a K, Mickey's Christmas Carol starring Scrooge McDuck, Mr. Magoo's Christmas Carol, Ms. Scrooge, The Muppet Christmas Carol, Scrooge, Scrooge, perhaps my favorite retelling because Bill Murray is just a genius, The Smurfs A Christmas Carol, The Stingiest Man in Town, Family Ties A Keaton Christmas Carol, and The Billion Dollar Man A Bionic Christmas Carol where the Scrooge character is a guy named Horton Budge. Romeo and Juliet rivals A Christmas Carol in reboots, reimaginings, and pop culture tributes with pedestrian names like the animated Nomeo and Juliet, the Toxic Adventures Tromeo and Juliet, and a shout-out to the Blue Oyster Cult anthem, Don't Fear the Reaper. I gotta have more cowbell. Scatter curiosity, while the Grim Reaper is synonymous with death, Blue Oyster Cult asserts that its mention of the infamous romantic duo in the classic 80s radio hit is not in reference to suicide, but forever love. But the songs I most associate with Romeo and Juliet are from the mid-90s Boz Lerman film soundtrack, and the score of the Broadway sensation West Side Story, where Romeo is Tony, Juliet is Maria, the Jets and Sharks replace Montagues and Capulets, who live in New York City instead of Italy, and the words and phrases that came out of Romeo and Juliet include uncomfortable, inauspicious, alligator derived from the Spanish alligarto, what's in a name, wild goose chase, star-crossed lovers, parting is such sweet sorrow, and a plague on both your houses. Dickens' next book, David Copperfield, is believed to be his unofficial autobiography. In it, he literally gave us the creeps by inventing the turn of phrase, in addition to the words gorm, which is a nicer way of saying goddamn, and micawber, which is a poor person with a glass-half-full attitude towards life. Shakespeare's Henry series between Henry IV through VI and Henry VIII, I am, brought about the Keanu Reeves River Phoenix film, My Own Private Idaho, hearkening Henry IV and Henry V, and the Henry's contributions to literature are plentiful with Bachelorship, Addiction, Bloodstained, Anchovy, Impartial, Motionless, Published, Bold-Faced, Raw-Boned, 
puppy dog, stony hearted, faint hearted, heart of gold, well read, to be smirch, to sully, send packing, devil incarnate, for goodness sake, and eaten me out of house and home. And speaking of houses and homes, Charles Dickens' novel Bleak House, which led to a movie and television series, also introduced delightful terms. Gone off, a pickpocket or thief. Boredom. Jog trotty, piggybacking on boredom as the slow trot of a horse. Slangular, meaning on an angle. Red tape. Round the clock. And growlery, a place you go when you are feeling, quote, out of humor, humor with a U. Also, the preacher from Bleak House, Mr. Chadband, is synonymous with the word hypocrite, while a turvy drop, based on Mr. Turvy Drop, is a polite but lazy person. Belongings comes from Shakespeare's Measure for Measure. A gadagrine from Dickens' Hard Times is somebody who is cold-hearted. It was Greek to me came from Julius Caesar. In A Tale of Two Cities, Dickens helped to make the word a buzz become a buzz itself. Cruel-hearted is from the two gentlemen of Verona. Great expectations provided on the rampage. Doormat, used as a metaphor. And cagmaggers, meaning rotten meat. Full-grown, countless, and pageantry are from Shakespeare's Pericles, Prince of Tyre. Podsnappery is quite Dickensful, a word that I just made up, and used to describe the pompous, conceited character John Podsnap from his 1865 novel, Our Mutual Friend. But Shakespeare simply crushes this category because while Dickens certainly invented more words than the ones I highlighted here, most of them are simply not used much and many I have never heard uttered ever. It is interesting that these much older Shakespeare vocables and stories still resonate with us today. Twelfth Night brought forth the locution dexterously and laid the groundwork for the movie She's the Man, which sets the story in a high school where a girl poses as a boy to join a soccer team in place of Shakespeare's tale of a sister impersonating her missing brother following a shipwreck. In our cosmic episode from season one of Scattered Curiosities, Moons, Mooning, and The Moon, we learned that the 27 moons of Uranus are named after Shakespearean characters. And of those, most are from The Tempest. So it seems fitting that the 1956 sci-fi film Forbidden Planet is also based on the play replacing an uncharted island with an alien world, plus Leslie Nielsen. Here on Earth, 
the play provided us with the words and phrases baseless, eyeball, sanctimonious, in a pickle, melted into thin air, such stuff as dreams are made on, and misery acquaints a man with strange bedfellows. The Comedy of Errors is the origin of the Lexeme fortune teller and the saying something in the wind, and is also where the 1988 Lily Tomlin and Bette Midler movie Big Business borrowed its premise of two pairs of identical twins, Rose and Sadie Ratliff and Sadie and Rose Shelton, resulting in quite the erroneous comedy. Unappeased is from Titus Andronicus. Unearthly is from A Winter's Tale. Shall I Compare Thee to a Summer's Day is from the Sonnets. Perplex, Satisfying, and Not Slept One Wink are from Cymbeline. Cold-Hearted, Enthroned, Leaky, and To Submerge are credited with Antony and Cleopatra. Distasteful, Droplet, Fashionable and arch-villain can be found in Timon of Athens for their first uses. Gallantry, snail paste, and good riddance are from one of my favorite Shakespeare plays, Troilus and Cressida. Elbow Room and Cold-Blooded are taken from King John. Mimic, Moonbeam, Flowery, Pale-Faced, Fancy-Free, and What Fools These Mortals Be are out of A Midsummer Night's Dream. Quarrelsome, puking, eventful, lackluster, newfangled, forever and a day, too much of a good thing, seen better days, and neither rhyme nor reason are from as you like it. King Lear got us acquainted with the words foppish, unaccommodated, restorations, noiseless, half-blooded, and hot-blooded. Love's Labor's Lost can be credited with superscript, Promethean, and Naked Truth, along with the words critic, domineering, to educate, and getting your money's worth. Othello is the birthplace of accommodation, aerial, silliness, pomp and circumstance, to comply, to ensnare, and to wear my heart upon my sleeve. Then there is the be-all and end-all from Macbeth, alongside Dauntless, Assassination, Come What May, One Fell Swoop, Something Wicked This Way Comes, A Sorry Night, Sound and Fury, What's Done Is Done, and There's No Such Thing, paving the way for the 1955 crime drama titled Joe Macbeth, starring Paul Douglas and Ruth Roman, set in the 1930s. And finally, we have the cultural influences derived from the taming of the shrew, highlighting literary classics like Bedazzled, Eyesore, Break the Ice, Pitched Battle, and Kill with Kindness. This Shakespeare comedy is also responsible for the punchy back-and-forth between Maddie Hayes and David Addison in my favorite mid-1980s dramedy, Moonlighting, which harbored a real-life pitched battle between its leading actors Sybil Shepard and Bruce Willis, 
who reportedly could not stand one another. As a bonus, we also got the teen film 10 Things I Hate About You and the John Wayne Maureen O'Hara classic McClintock. Shakespeare gets another Broadway musical credit to his name as Taming of the Shrew is used as the backdrop in the Cole Porter musical and play within a play, Kiss Me Kate, which takes place backstage and on stage during rehearsals and a performance of Taming of the Shrew, where its leading couple bickers in real life like the roles they are playing, Catherine and Petruchio. I love this show and its music, which include the songs Too Darn Hot, Wunderbar, So In Love, Another Openin' Another Show, I Hate Men, and, of course, Brush Up Your Shakespeare. Charles Dickens wasn't without melodical worth, though. There are musical adaptations of A Christmas Carol, Great Expectations, and Oliver Twist, as I mentioned before. But the best of them has got to be the one that's based on Charles Dickens' final and unfinished novel, The Mystery of Edwin Drood. So why do we gravitate to these dated chronicles? Probably because they themselves are inspired by even older stories and authors. If you have any memory of your literary classes from school, you might remember the seven basic plot devices and conflicts that have driven entertainment for countless centuries. If they have escaped you, don't worry. I had to look them up again, too, and will share them with you along with examples of narratives that you know that fit within the category. The seven basic plots in storytelling are Overcoming a Monster, like in Dracula, Nicholas Nickleby, Star Wars A New Hope, Perseus, Beowulf, The Seven Samurai, and most of the James Bond films. Rags to Riches, used in Cinderella, Aladdin, Great Expectations, Brewster's Millions, The Prince and the Pauper, and David Copperfield. The Quest was most notably done in the Odyssey, in addition to the Harry Potter, Indiana Jones, Harold and Kumar, and the Lord of the Rings franchises. The Voyage and Return were illustrated in Alice in Wonderland, Labyrinth, The Wizard of Oz, Goldilocks and the Three Bears, Peter Rabbit, The Hobbit, Gone with the Wind, Apollo 13, Gulliver's Travels, Finding Nemo, and Back to the Future Parts 1 through 3. Comedy is pretty self-explanatory with the examples of A Midsummer Night's Dream, Much Ado About Nothing, Twelfth Night, Airplane, A Hard Day's Night, Idiocracy, Mystery Science Theater 3000, and any Mel Brooks film. And I'm still waiting on the Spaceballs and History of the World sequels. Tick-tock, Mr. Brooks. Tragedy is also self-explanatory and highly effective in Macbeth, 
Romeo and Juliet, Julius Caesar, Breaking Bad, Hamlet, and Tommy Wiseau's The Room. And the seventh device is Rebirth, which is utilized in tales such as Beauty and the Beast, A Christmas Carol, The Frog Prince, Avatar, The Secret Garden, How the Grinch Stole Christmas, and Despicable Me. In addition to the seven basic plots used by Shakespeare and Dickens, there are also the six basic story conflicts of Man Against Man, The Hunger Games, Die Hard, or Romeo and Juliet, Man Against Nature, Cujo, The Old Man in the Sea, Moby Dick, and Jaws. Dang, there's a lot of sea creatures for that one. Man Against Self, Fight Club, Hamlet, and the transformation of Anakin Skywalker to Darth Vader in Star Wars. Man Against Society, Charlotte's Web, 1984, Catcher in the Rye, and Great Expectations. Man Against Machine, or Technology, The Matrix, The Terminator, and 2001 A Space Odyssey. And Man Against the Supernatural, Oedipus Rex, The Shining, or Independence Day. And some people might include the conflict of man against God, but I would instead group that in with the supernatural category. Unless, of course, the God is an actual character. Deus Ex Machina, or Getting Saved at the Last Second, was a fashionable and contrived literary plot device used heavily in Greek tragedies, which relied on the gods to step in and save the day in tales like the Odyssey. In addition to The Merchant of Venice, Gandalf and the Hobbit, or Superman himself. Another favorite plot device is the Shoulder Angel, a personification of the character's conscious which is generally depicted by a demon on the left shoulder and an angel on the right representing the ego and superego. However, I would again argue that this belongs under the broader category of man versus self. A red herring is a plot device used to distract the audience like a suspenseful whodunit that tricks you into thinking that the jealous husband is the killer when it is really the sweet, soft-spoken housekeeper. Red herrings are scattered all over Sherlock Holmes stories, Agatha Christie mysteries, and even modern classics like The Usual Suspects. And one of my favorite plot devices, The MacGuffin, was invented by another Englishman, Alfred Hitchcock. The MacGuffin refers to an object. Any object. Doesn't matter what it is. Do you remember the mysterious light in the briefcase featured in Pulp Fiction? You never find out what's in there. It's left to your imagination. It's the MacGuffin. Hitchcock, also born outside of London, argued that the actual object itself is unimportant 
and the viewer's interpretation is far more interesting than anything that he could present, making Hitchcock both the Shakespeare and the Dickens of filmmaking, despite the fact that the works of Dickens and Shakespeare have produced far more films than Alfred Hitchcock. So if you are overwhelmed with what seems like a tidal wave of reboots in the entertainment industry these days, take a breath and remember that this is not really a new phenomenon. It has been happening since even before the Sons of Johns did it and will likely continue well past the time that robots and smoking monkeys will dominate the Writers Guild of America. What the dickens? Also, William Shakespeare was a regular patron of the Mermaid Tavern. keep the curiosities coming please rate us on itunes soundcloud or your favorite podcast platform and don't forget to visit scatteredcuriosities.com for exclusive free downloads and to donate to the show